0: Welcome to the Catch em and Keep em podcast with Melissa Glenny and Mark Altman. We're here to help you hire, engage, and retain the best talent to help you make your vision a reality.
1: Welcome back everybody to another edition of Catch Em, Keep em. Melissa Glenny and I are happy to be back. And I gotta tell you, this episode, you need to be paying close attention because Melissa is gonna touch upon something That is just flat out a universal problem for companies of all sizes all over the country. And that's why the top 8% of salespeople won't join your team and what you can do about it. And I got to tell you, Melissa, I'm going to be all ears because I know this is a challenge for my own organization. So, Melissa, great to be back with you.
0: Yeah, great to be back with you, Mark. I'm excited to talk about this because I share your pain. It's been one of the biggest challenges for mine as well. So, I'm glad to dive in.
1: So, Melissa, you know, so many employers are struggling in this area. And so it would seem obvious, but why why have you found a niche with sales reps? Why is it, why have you found kind of the secret sauce to do this?
0: Well, you know, Mark, I I, um, chose to focus on specifically sales reps because almost 13% of all jobs in the U.S., that's one in eight, are full-time sales positions. So there's a large population of sales reps And it's hard to find the good candidates. It's extremely hard to find the good ones, especially with the demand being so high. Um, So it takes a comprehensive strategy and a lot of effort to hire the best ones.
1: Melissa, you know, when 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 you're finding those candidates, is there any kind of red flag or deal breaker, just something from your experience, you know, right out of the gate that as you're evaluating qualifying candidates for companies that you specifically look out for?
0: Well, you know, I dive pretty early on in the process. I have um, a, a, a method for questioning sales reps, and, and uh, it seems as though to me I've been able to do it in such a way where they don't know where I'm going. Um, it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's really funny in the conversation where I can sense that they've just discovered where I'm going, <laughs> okay, just... and they better have been truthful <laughs> uh, about, you know, because I'll. I'll start out with you know what their sales cycles are like and volume and prices and gross profit and so it's all very just light and like oh interesting okay and then and then when it comes down to talk quota uh, they I know how, I can do math. <laughs> so I just get that out of the way and make sure somebody is number one honest. That's number one.
1: Well and I and I have to tell you Melissa you and I have had a lot of conversations about when when sales reps underperform it can be a multitude of reasons. However, we both have agreed that very often it's because they weren't assessed effectively in the hiring process. So, you know, you, you've been on top of that since day one. So talk about, you know, your thoughts on that and how you've approached that a little differently.
0: Well, yeah, I I think assessments are important and you know, you're right about that. Um, I've worked with a lot of companies who hire salespeople based on the soft skills that they observe in the interview. That person's outgoing, a good conversational um, skills. They, you know, appear motivated and confident. So the hiring managers get excited, and then they don't carry um, on to do their full due diligence. And you know, studies show that I think it's somewhere around 50 or 55 percent of people are making their living in sales. But they don't have the right skills to be successful, and I think that's that's what kind of comes through, and that's why sometimes it just feels like, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, a crapshoot when companies are hiring salespeople because you know they some work out, and it seems like an equal amount don't work out, or sometimes an even greater amount don't work out. So um, you know, I think the reason that I focus on the top eight percent of salespeople um, is well, let me ask you this, this question mark out of all the sales revenue generated in the United States across all industries, how much of that sales revenue would you say is generated by the top 8% of sales reps?
1: Well, the first thing that came to my mind is the 80-20 rule, but I really don't know. I would have defaulted to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think I'd, I'd be in the, same, um, in the same boat with you. I, I would go to that too. So the numbers show that the top 8% of sales reps actually are producing 80% of all sales generated. So I I think in in essence, you've got it. So um, that the 80% is accurate. So I know, I know that you can do math too, but I just have to state it the other way. That's 92% of sales reps that are collectively producing 20% of sales.
1: Melissa, let me ask you, continue, please. I didn't interrupt you.
0: No, no, no. I'm like, so that's the pool, right? So
1: hence
0: yep. the reason it's so difficult.
1: Well, so let me ask you, you, you got me thinking when you said that. I feel a lot of companies have a budget for their sales team. And they're they're given certain numbers by whether it's uh, an executive board, whether it's investors, whatever it is, certain numbers that they need to meet. And even with the statistic you just shared, which is really compelling, you know, I wonder if sometimes... You know, companies aren't doing enough due diligence during the hiring process because they just feel like they need to get bodies in there. Because even if those bodies generate 20%, it still helps companies achieve their goals. So, are you seeing companies maybe not do enough due diligence during the hiring process just because they're trying to fill quotas?
0: Well, I think that one common methodology that I've seen um, for, you know, the last couple of decades is um, companies just kind of uh, understanding, you know, they kind of adapt this, this mentality that it's it's a numbers game. Um, and so they'll hire four or five, maybe six reps, realizing they really only need to, to retain one or two. And then, you know, it's, you know, survival of the fittest. So 90 days or six months, whatever the timeline is, um, they'll just flesh out the people who aren't performing as well as the, the one or two that they want to keep. Um, so it's sort of a mud, throwing mud against the wall um, method yeah. of going about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really common. And I have, a, I have a problem with it because, you know, I think that I look at the there's financial aspects, you know, you're obviously um, paying a lot of training dollars, you know, the time it takes to acclimate, you know, a lot of people to acclimate. And it's, it's not just taking, it's not just the salary of the person that you're paying who's going to churn and uh, you know, 90 days or, or whatnot. It's the investment of everyone else in the company. Um, and then there's the, the aspect of goodwill and your, your reputation as a company. If you're turning people in and out, then what are those people who are turning out saying about you? And, and now you're hurting your chances of hiring top talent. So, um, you know, I think that that's, that's why I, I highlight that as something that I don't think is an ideal practice.
1: Well, in, you know, one of my big curiosities in this call is it, it can be hard enough to attract even decent salespeople, never mind top-tier talent. So how are you able to do that for companies and really get that top 8%? How are you able to pull that off?
0: Well, I think that, you know, there's, there's three things that I would, I would speak to on that. I think number one, you know I, I' heard you say before and and i completely agree that hope is not a strategy you know you, you put out job um, postings and you know kind of hope that the good candidates come your way you've got to really have a strategy with um, you know strategic partnerships referral bonuses recruiting plans in today's recruitment environment that means you have technology in place uh, to support the, the the recruitment and if If you don't have the technology, then that's definitely something that can be supplemented by having the appropriate strategic partnerships. I'm referring to recruiters or agencies. Um, So I think that that's foundational. Um, And then realize that it's a continual process. It's not an event. So, you know, uh, I know we brought up Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross before, um, and and I'll adapt that because I I have a a, a saying in in my business, always be courting. And what I mean is, always be identifying the top players in your industry or in your market, and and essentially be marketing to them and building a relationship with them before you need them. So I recommend doing things like, um, you know, maybe measuring talent pipelines with hiring managers and working it into their compensation as a KPI. Because you know what what gets uh, measured gets managed. So uh, for example having hiring managers have a uh, X number of interviews per week, month, quarter, depending on the level of hiring that they need to be doing. Uh, and then tying it off with a measurement of the time to fill, uh, when there is an open rec. So like really managing the process. Um, aside from that, I think it's really important. We talked about employer branding and <sighs> I feel like I'm just, you know, beating that drum continuously, but there's a reason for it. Um, Companies really need to have employer branding that echoes the skills and the attitudes that they need. A lot of companies, I think, jumped on the employer branding bandwagon, um, but they've done so in such a way that's not always the most effective. My point there is that it's not about like painting this picture of blue sky and like rainbows and butterflies or um, beer and ping pong all day, whatever whatever that may look like. It's really about being honest about your company culture and attracting people who have the the personality and the attributes that fit that. And to be honest, not only do you want to attract your target candidates, you should also be detracting the candidates that will not be the right fit.
1: Yeah. I got to tell you, Melissa, I love what you're saying there. I have a couple of questions and a quick thought. I mean, first of all, you know, we talked in our podcast last week about the importance of authenticity. And I know it's something you and I very much feel the same about. And I like the message you're giving because you're basically saying, look, it's one thing to sell or close a candidate. It's another thing to misrepresent just so during the recruiting process they feel all warm and fuzzy because like your story with the devil, at the end of the day, what are they actually walking into? So I, I think that's a critical point attracting not only people that will stay but like you said the right kind of people Um, yeah but I have a couple of questions you know I want to go back to the first thing you said about a recruiting plan and you know I often comment to companies that when they when they promote leaders from positions of non-leadership they don't necessarily have the requisite skills to be effective leaders unless they get training so my question for you is in the hiring manager HR realm, how do, how do these people in those positions know how to build a recruiting plan? Who has ever taught them to, you know, beyond where are we gonna advertise the job posting? Who are we gonna to hire to recruit for us? Um, how much are we gonna pay? What does the job description look like? I mean, to me, a recruiting plan is more sophisticated than that, but do they really have the knowledge?
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the question, do they really have the knowledge? Um, I think by and large, um, a lot of people just haven't been trained in that area, and, and it's not a conversation that's really a common one. Um, you know, I, I suggest starting with the company's org chart. And, you know, if you look at the, the, the positions that are absolutely critical to have the right person in place, and, and what I mean is, like, through and through, they're just a fit for the company. They have the, the company DNA. Those core values are all in alignment. Um, you, you know, you do not every single position within a company has to be an exact match on the core values and things of that sort, but there are some where you better make sure you got it right. So, you know, if you were to look at that, that org chart and then, you know, just highlight what are those positions where we've got to make sure we've got it exactly right, and then what, what's the succession plan? How does the succession um, uh, flow? And make sure that you're hiring within the teams, so that there's someone, you know, one or two or however, you know, whatever percentage of the team that makes sense, that can be groomed to step into that position, assuming that, you know, you want to be pulling people up through your organization versus seeing them exit. So that's one that's one of the first suggestions that I have. And, and I don't I don't see that a lot of companies really think um, about recruiting plans in, within the context of succession planning. And I think that's the first the first place is don't lose your good people.
1: Yeah one other follow-up question Melissa to that I, I often think about attribution and I'm curious to know how you feel about when you when you find stark talent for companies and they work out. How much credit should you take? And if they don't work out, how much blame should you in, uh, take, so to speak? Like, how do you? What's the attribution uh, process you 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 use?
0: Hmm. Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I'd like to say one hundred percent credit, zero percent blame. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But, uh, yeah, but I, I know that's not the right answer. <laughs> um, I think that it's always a, a, a collective. You know, um, so we've, we've seen situations where, you know, it's not until we're six or 12 months into a relationship with a client where we start to really understand uh, the reasons for some turnover and things of that sort. But I think that, you know, as a recruiter, if you're really – doing your due diligence uh, for all of the parties, uh, all of the, the uh, interested parties, you know, both the candidate and for the company. I really think it's the job of the recruiter to, you know, assess as fully as possible, you know, what, what are the, the um, issues within the company that can cause things to not work out in the long run? And what are the potential, you know, flags for the candidate that can cause it to not, uh, to work out in the long run. So I I think that, you know, it's a partnership with a client. It's a partnership with a candidate and everyone has a shared responsibility. I hope that's not a weak answer, but you know, well, it, we're, we're, all, we're all invested in it together.
1: You know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we spent so much time on the show talking about, you know, how to get that top 8% level candidate, but let's go a different direction. What about the challenge of, What can companies do to hedge off losing the top players they already have? Because that is always uh, a struggle for companies. So what should they do in that case?
0: Yeah, I think in lawyers part, it goes back to what I was saying about culture. Um, You know, first things first, make sure you're fostering an environment that thrives on trust and respect. Um, I I know that sounds like a given, but, um, you know, still organizations are still out there struggling with that. Um, Beyond that, I think that companies waste a lot of time and energy coming up with benefit packages and perks and incentives and rewards. And I'm not saying it's a waste to focus on that, but um, it's wasteful to think that you put all of these things in place and then you're good. Um, And and in some cases, not everything you put in place is going to be meaningful to people. and, And beyond that, The management can't read people's minds, so they have no way of knowing what's really meaningful unless they ask. So I think, you know, um, ask early, ask often as life unfolds and priorities change for people. Um, Companies, I think, are wise to just stay in step with their employees in that way and ask what's important to them and and use that as your foundation for what you build out.
1: Well, you know, and, you know, Melissa, I hear, um, I've heard a lot of CEOs say get frustrated they've communicated to me how frustrated they are that they think they do so much for their staff and they give them a great benefits plan and vacation and all this and 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 they begrudgingly resign themselves but they're still not happy and then i think speaks mm-hmm. to exactly what you're saying is that i mean there's multiple components that make up ha- happiness so you know my follow-up question for you is that, you know if there'd be something more of a fixed asset that a company can rely on you know as a cornerstone foundation to help them attract and retain the top reps what you know what would you say it should be
0: oh yeah that's a great question um i think that a company's vision and purpose holds a lot of value for employees especially uh, now that we have the, the uh, representation um of the millennial generation they um, god bless them they're just uh, such a mission-minded uh group of people that I, I, you know, so I think that working for a company where they feel like they're able to make a real change in the world, I think that's a big deal. So if you've got that in place, like you said, Mark, you've got a cornerstone, which is
1: great. Well, and you know, uh, what I think one of the biggest challenges, Melissa, in terms of what you're saying is that if you think about the offer itself, when someone gets an offer and they're looking at dollars and cents and benefits and vacation time and you know, learning opportunities, whatever. You know, it's not like you would write on a, on a job offer. And by the way, we have a great culture and vision here. And w- that's where I think companies struggle is because it's such a nebulous thing that it's mm-hmm. not like a tangible thing you can put on a piece of paper and the candidate's gonna go, oh, well, if your culture's that, I'm taking the job. And <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's like what I said about attribution before. It's such an easy thing to glaze over because it is an intangible, but we have heard so many people in general, and especially like you said, the millennial generation point to those things as critical cornerstones. So I think you're spot on.
0: Mm, Yeah. And you never know, Mark, I there's a company I represent who is just, they've done such a phenomenal job um creating a work environment that frankly, when I walk in the door, it feels like Disneyland. I'm like, who would, would not want to work here? And you know, one day I interviewed a woman who only worked there for six months and I asked her about her experience and she um, explained like she couldn't wait to get out of there. She's like, they're the weirdest people. They took an entire afternoon off and played field games in the yard and made hot dogs. And it's like, it was just creepy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> that's great so all oh, right so, so we're almost out of time so one one final question is you know listening to you talk about vision and purpose and things like that how important in the grand scheme of things when you're attracting this top tier top eight percent talent? Where does it rate in the grand scheme of things?
0: Interesting. I think there's a common conception that a great salesperson can sell anything. And, you know, I, I recently um, finished reading The Art of Sale by David uh, Broughton and um, he made a point that I had never considered before. In, um, in his decades of research, he concluded, and then I'll see if I can remember this, the way that uh, it was presented but um, basically nothing matters more in sales at the end of the day you know somebody has got the right attributes they've got training but um, nothing matters more than how the salesperson perceives her role and how that that act of selling either protects or um, inflates or undermines her sense of self so um, kind of breaking that down. I think that that is part of the answer to a question of mine that I've had uh, as far as my observation of people being successful in one sales environment and then going to another where they more or less fall up. And I, I actually say that I I had that experience personally. So, um, I you know, I, there was like a missing piece And when I read um, Philip's work, I I realized that I really think that 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 piece of how a salesperson is perceiving what he or she is doing, uh, I think that's really important. So that's where, you know, the purpose and the vision definitely plays in to a person's ability to be successful in sales as long as the other criteria is met there.
1: Well, Melissa, I got to tell you, uh, without being melodramatic, I think that sentence is downright compelling because how a salesperson perceives her role and how the act of selling protects, inflates, or undermines her sense of self, to me, that is that sentence depicts why so many people don't like sales. Right? Yeah. Because, because yeah. how they see themselves when they when they do their perceived act and behaving like a salesperson, um, Brings their self esteem down. So I love that. I think, I, wow, that's a, I had never heard that. That's really a compelling statement. Wow. So, all right, well, Melissa, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, last question for me is, you know, uh, everybody's looking for top tier salespeople. So if, co- if companies are looking to uh, attract and, and really take advantage of your expertise and knowledge, even in a bare minimum in a consulting capacity, what's the best way to connect with you?
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, info at franklinprofessionals.com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also happy to um, hear from people just personally. My direct number is 508-654-6243. And what I often do is just start with it's kind of a triage conversation, uh, totally complimentary, and just kind of walk through the recruiting process and the challenges. And, you know, see where we can, um, you know, add to value and help them to overcome their number one obstacle. So, um, yeah, yeah, happy to hear from anybody who might um, be struggling a little bit and see if I can offer up some suggestions.
1: All right. Well, thanks again, Melissa. And, you know, if, if, if any of our listeners have ideas and they'd like to email us different topics that they'd like us to discuss, please do. Otherwise, thank you for uh, joining us for another edition of the Catch 'em, Keep 'em podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time. For Melissa Glenny, I'm Mark Altman. Have a good rest of the week.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Catch 'em and Keep 'em podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss us next time. In the meantime, remember that engaging your people is a daily task, and recruiting is a process, not an event. If you need help, just ask. Connect directly with Melissa at franklinprofessionals.com and Mark at mindsetgo.com.